0: Hello again. Thanks for clicking onto another edition of Jiffy and Stubsy. But in the background to this, uh, Jewel rugby coach, star Jonathan Davis came up with the idea that we talk to the, the good and the great about sport and all manner of issues. He asked me to join in. I very was delighted to do that. And grateful thanks to Kerry London, who are sponsoring this series of Jiffy and Stubbsy. And in uncertain times in the world of finance. Uh, Kerry, insurance brokers, leading insurance brokers uh, are a place to go to, uh, to get expert advice. Uh, Today's guest, well, first of all, we should say he's an Arsenal fan. Uh, (laughs) An Arsenal fan with uh, passionate views uh, on his club, and that is terrific. But then when we consider his role in uh, broadcast journalism and in print journalism and uh, as an author, well, I'm not sure where to start, Britain's got talent, America's got talent, interviewing world leaders, actors, musicians. That doesn't really do it justice at all. And he revs the country up every morning on Good Morning Britain. And the book, which has just been uh, come out, written by Piers Morgan, is called uh, Wake Up. I've read the chapter, I've read the first chapter, Piers. I'm looking forward to going through the rest of it. And it's really made me think. It's really made me think. Keen to ask you about what you wanted to achieve uh, with the book Wake Up. But first of all, let's talk football, let's talk sport. Um, Where are you and where Arsenal are right now? Because you are a passionate Arsenal fan.
1: Well, as you know, it's been a very bruising, long uh, summer of discontent, I would describe it, for Arsenal (laughs) fans. And it's a a weird one, isn't it? Because when Arsene Wenger came along in the mid-90s, We'd never heard of him. It was this weird, bespectacled Frenchman who'd been in Japan. And then suddenly, he won the double. And then he kept winning the league and more doubles. And we were invincible. And for eight, nine years, we had the best manager in the world. And that's even with Alex Ferguson uh, competing against him. And it was just an absolute golden time for Arsenal fans. And I think we all got a little bit spoiled. We got used to it. And then it all changed. You know, We had Abramovich bought Chelsea. Suddenly, their game changed. They were paying huge amounts of cash for players, which we couldn't compete with. We had the stadium move that restricted us further. And Wenger, I, I believe, and I say this kindly to him, I've I read his book and he's a great man in many ways, but I think he lost his managerial powers. He, he lost that ability to have that winning competitive edge, which Alex Ferguson never lost. You know, Fergie went out on a high. He won the Premier League again with a new team again. And Wenger kept chasing the high, and he never got it. So I think, like most Arsenal fans, when Wenger finally left, it was a relief. And then we went through the uh, Unai Emery period, which, you know, maybe he didn't get quite enough time, but it felt like he'd lost the players. Then we got Arteta, and then again the hope came. And now we were thinking, this is it. We've got Pep's number two. He looks like he's the future. Everything was going great. And then suddenly, here we are. We're 11th or 12th in the league. Uh, We played very badly the last few games. Um, Yang, our top striker, hasn't scored in five or six matches. Uh, It all... And the hope, I can feel it. I I wish it wasn't, but the hope is being wrestled from me, sucked out of my spirit and thrown on the floor. And it's the hope that kills. So that's my long torturous answer to your question. I think most Arsenal fans will probably know what I mean.
2: To me as an outsider, like, and I I love watching football and I love watching Arsenal because I love the way they play and I think a lot of people do. You know, when they were boarding Arsenal, people went off them. But I, I, I do think, as a sportsman, I feel it's that drive and aggression that's missing there because they've got all the fancy football and the beautiful footballers and they play a lovely game but when it comes down to the crunch mm. they just miss that a bit of nastiness in the mid when, when they had Vieira I suppose they've just missed that and Tony Adams and Keon uh, and I, do you think that's a big fact? When you mentioned Fergie, you see Fergie getting all, you know, mm. you think he's going to have a heart attack on the sideline, don't you? But you don't see that with Arsenal. None of the Arsenal managers.
1: Well, I always ask myself the, the same question. And I ask it of Arsenal fans when we have the debate about it. So I said, look, let's be honest. How many of this squad would get into any of Wenger's title-winning teams, the three yeah. title-winning
2: teams? Yeah. And, you know,
1: Man United players like Scholes and Neville and those guys, they'll tell you the first Wenger Double winning team in 97 98 was arguably the best, never mind the Invincibles, that it was the most balanced team. Uh, and the answer is very few. You know, you really? might find room for a Bami Yang, uh, or you might not because of Burkamp and Henri and Riem right. uh, Wright and Anelka and so on. Um, and after that, you're really struggling. And I think one of the reasons I talked to Paul Scholes about this because he played against all those Wenger teams. And Scholes was a kind of, you know, one of my favorite all time players, hard as nails absolutely brilliant, skillful, talented, driven, passionate player. And he just thought that Arsenal had basically gone soft, like yeah. you said. Yeah. That, you know, and I think you've you've played high-level international rugby. You know that you need people in that team that put the fear of God into people. And what yeah. Skull said to me was when they got in the tunnel against those three Wenger title winning teams and they looked down the tunnel, the United boys knew they were in for a war. His words yeah. a war. Yeah. You look yeah. down, you'd see Adams Pion, Bold, you'd see Vieira, Petit. You know, he said even Burkham would put the boots in. Freddie, hard as nails, Thierry Henry. And he said, and you saw players, Ashley Cole, Sol Campbell, Gilberto Silva, Laurent. I mean, you could go through them all. And that's why I say when you try and find room for the current squad, I think Partey could be one of the answers to this. He looked great against United. But overall, we lack that gristle, the steel the fight. I think Tierney's got it. I think party has got it. And I think of Bamiyang's world class. But outside of that, you're like, come on, we need, yeah. we need some fight
0: here. Yeah, yeah. Where did- Piers, Piers, I know the nation's health is of paramount importance and the most important uh, aspect of uh, life <laughs> right now. But how do you think sport, um, how do you think government has dealt with sport throughout the mm-hmm. pandemic?
1: Uh, Actually, I think they've dealt with it pretty well. It's one of the few areas where I would congratulate the government on actually getting any sport going, because some countries haven't. I didn't think we'd get Premier League football this year. Uh, I really didn't. I thought the season, last season, should have been voided uh, back in March when it looked like it was no chance. So I actually congratulate them and the clubs and the football authorities for getting football playing. It's better than nothing. It's not the real deal. We all know that. It's certainly not... The same for the players or the fans, but it's better than nothing. So in terms of sport, I actually think they they deserve a reasonable pat on the back compared to almost anything else they've done where they deserve nothing but criticism. So, yeah, look, I think it's been one of the few things, hasn't it, where we've been in lockdown, that one of the few things to actually fill the time and give us a bit of a lift is watching live sport and the way we've been able to. The cricket in particular, actually. The IPL recently, I noticed this, was just really great to watch. And yeah. fake, the fake crowd noise, Funny enough, people love it or hate it. I actually like it. It was like watching normal cricket for me. Oh, it's so difficult,
2: though. When I think supporters are so important to create atmosphere. And, uh, you know, there's a big game, Wales-England, this weekend. Right? And they're all talking about how do you create your own atmosphere. That, I think it's one of the things I've enjoyed, is listening to the the players communicate on the field and you create your own atmosphere anyway. So when you're I on think the, the field, best it's
1: very interesting to me to watch in football, for example. One of my, my, my the guy I think is the best ever played the game, Cristiano Ronaldo. This guy's 35 years old. He's played most of his season without any crowd. Everyone imagines him as this big peacock who lives off the fans. Yeah. And I had the pleasure of spending a day with him in Turin and having dinner with him last year. And fascinating guy. And we stayed in touch. We've become quite good friends, which has been great for me and uh, probably terrible for him. But anyway, it's been great. (laughs) But it gives me an insight into his mind. And what's been fascinating, he's 35. Last night, he scored his 37th goal of the year in his 36th game. And who's the only guy rivaling him in Serie A? Ibrahimovic, who's even older, and banging in goals for fun. Now, these are two guys, very cocky and arrogant on the pitch, that you would think would need a crowd to get them going. And I compare and contrast them and their astonishing consistency with no fans in the stadium to some of the lesser players who haven't been able to get themselves going and perhaps are using the lack of fans as an excuse because what this is exposing is the ones who've got it here where it's actually driven from themselves and they don't need anything else. That impresses me. Yeah, they
0: wouldn't Piers, you don't hold hold back on television. Uh, Who are the football pundits that uh, you think hit the right notes? Um, I actually... Well, I'm a good friend of of
1: Gary Lennick I always say, Gary, you you can't actually beat an opinion (laughs) from someone who's played at the absolute highest level. You know, when I listen to Jonathan about rugby, I listen. Because I know he's been one of the greats of the game. When I listen to Ian Botham about cricket or Jeff Boycott or people like that, I listen. Uh, and I think there's a real pedigree that comes from that. So when Gary Lenniker talks, I listen to him. But I like, I like a lot of them. I think that uh, I like people like Roy Keane. To me, he's, he's my dream. He's like the boycott of football punditry. And I know he divides opinion, but I find him utterly compelling, Roy Keane. You know, I like Gary Neville dower nev i call him Teabag from prison break because he's there's an astonishing physical <laughs> resemblance to him but i like listening to him moaning away i love ian wright the passion the joy the, the, the zest for life in a way the way they all do their punditry is very similar to how they played the game roy roy Keane will scythe you down call you an idiot you know neville constantly chirping and moaning yeah. getting busy with everybody and ian wright leaping around yeah. And joyous, you know, Rio Ferdinand, skillful, elegant. You know, yeah. in a way, I don't know what you think, Ray, because you're the expert on this. But I do see people's on-field personalities come through in the way that they do punditry. I think they broadcast as they play. The Sorry.
0: Sorry. Go on, Ray. They broadcast as they played, as you say. Yeah, I I really think that. And I think that it applies probably in every sport.
1: I don't know about rugby so much, but certainly in cricket, for example, you know, you have the sort of calm, analytical style of someone like Mike Atherton. And then you've got beefy off the long run or boycott, you know, you know would take people down. Michael Holding, silky smooth, but not afraid to to, uh, say what he thinks. You know, it's a very interesting thing to watch as a fan. Uh, but you, again, you can't get away from the power. The dream really is where you have someone who you know is world class who can also articulate themselves in a really smart and passionate way. That to me as a as a, as a fan watching on television, that's the dream. Because then I know, they, I, I, they, they yeah. have the authority and they have the passion.
2: I think what, what they have is, you know, they have an honesty. They have the respect of the of the general public and... You know, they've been undone it, but the honesty that they, you know, on their comments, I think they, you have to you know, have credibility, and you have to be, irrespective of how uncomfortable you are, commentating on your own team, your own country, sometimes your own friends.
1: If you lose that credibility, you're gone. Well, you know, it's funny uh, you say that because I used to be a talent show judge. Uh, as you mentioned at the start, Britain's got talent and America's got talent. And when I first started, Simon Cowell put me on The American Mom is where it started. And I remember him coming to my Hollywood trailer. It all seemed totally ridiculous at the time. I'd gone from being turfed out of the Daily Mirror to being in my own trailer in a Hollywood uh, movie set. Anyway, he came to see me and he said, look, here's the deal with the, the role I want you to play. You want me to, to be him on the America's Got Talent, because he was doing the the rival American Idol. He said, you can be as mean and tough as you like and as judgmental as you want, but you've got to be right 80% of the time. If it dips below that, and you're saying stuff the viewers aren't feeling and watching with their own eyes, the the act doesn't play. If you're 80% or more, which was his yardstick for his own judgment, then you'll always have the credibility because you'll be saying what the majority of people at home are thinking. And I think that is the art. That's why yeah. the, the best pundits are the honest ones, and the worst are the ones that hide what they're really thinking because yeah. they're worried about upsetting people.
2: Yeah.
1: Piers, what, what what questions do you get asked most, please? Uh, it's very interesting because it depends on the job I was doing. You know, <laughs> the current one is what time do you get out of bed? I mean, literally, ninety-five percent of everyone I meet. What time do you have to get out of bed? And the answer is actually not that bad. And it was 3.45 when I, I joined. And after various oh. contract negotiations, it's now 5.15. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I had to keep threatening to leave, and it helps if the ratings are good. But I, um, yes, I got a better 5.15. It's fine. I'm back home doing this now. What is it, 9.30? It's fine. Um, so it's, that's one. And also, I think um, you know, when I do life stories, people say to me, do you, do you set out to make people cry? And I would say, no, no, never. I said, but it would be very strange to me to do a two-, three-hour interview with somebody without a break in which you talk about their entire life if you didn't trigger any emotion. To me, it's, it's more weird if a guest shows no emotion like that throughout even the most tragic times in their life. That shows to me a sort of weird defence mechanism. So that's the one I get with life stories. And then when I do my crime documentaries, yeah. it's people like, are oh, there security guards there? Do you not fear for your life? And the answer to that is it, you are a bit edgy because... Some of these people have killed 20, 30 people, and don't give a damn if they add one more to the notch. But I interviewed yeah. one serial killer, and turned out he had a pen in his pocket the whole time, and we hadn't spotted it. It's like at any moment he could have let forward. So it really depends on
2: what I'm doing. How do you prepare, then, to go into to see you know the murders? That's, I was with my kids last night having a, bit a spot of lunch, and they said, right, okay, you've got to ask him, what's his mindset, and how do you actually feel before going in and sipping right opposite you know
1: these mass murderers well I'd, like anyone I ever interviewed they 're just human beings. They happen to be yeah. in cases of the killers, often very damaged, psychotic, sometimes they are psychopaths and they 're completely devoid of any ability to show empathy or normal feelings sometimes they 're just pretty evil. I do think evil exists, people get for whatever reason they get warped and become evil people, or perhaps are even born with mental imbalance. So, you know, you go in there. I was going with a reasonably open mind because they're always, they always tell you they're innocent, 98% of yeah, yeah. Very, very rare to meet anyone who says, I did it all. Um, <laughs> and, they, and they've seen me as their potential escape route, which is a yeah. massive delusion on their part. But it was quite <laughs> interesting because when the, when the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, died last week, it reminded me that last year this weird story popped up i'd interviewed a psychopath an american psychopath called paris a male psychopath and he really was uh, a genuine psychopath he was incapable of normal human emotion so he was able to do despicable things and it just water off a duck's back because he didn't feel either remorse or guilt or shame or anything and he'd been diagnosed that way and um, apparently the auction ripper watched this interview in prison which i found odd in itself and wanted me to interview him because he wanted me to put the other side and all i could think was good i would love i would have loved to interview peter Sutcliffe, not to give him the other side but to finally actually hold him to proper ferocious account for the despicable murders that he committed not least because he'd never shown a shred of remorse for any of them and that would be my only reason to do it people say well, isn't it exploiting them, isn't it, you know, why would you want to rehash all these crimes? Isn't it bad for the the victims' families? It's very interesting. I get many notes afterwards from victims' families thanking me for holding these people's feet to the fire because often they they didn't have a proper court case or, you know, they didn't give evidence. They've never had someone sit there and go, you did it, didn't you? And for these people, these are their their loved ones that these people stole, and are murdered, So I find them fascinating. I mean, they, you don't pay them. There's, there's no reason they have to stay in the chair. So it's kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's cat and mouse a bit to try and get to where you want to get to. But they want to get out of their routine, I suppose, are they? you know, and like Piers Morgan is
2: coming in, be, they're, they're interested in sitting opposite you, I suppose, and pitting their wits against you because,
1: mm. well, most of them are narcissists as well, aren't they? Yeah, and the serial killers tend to be very br- uh, bright people. Yeah, they, they've often evaded capture for 10, 20 years against the FBI. So these are not stupid people. In fact, one of the reasons they're able to keep reoffending for many years and get away with it is because they have a highly sophisticated uh, intelligence, uh, albeit a very warped and deranged or evil one, which allows them to commit heinous crimes. But they're not stupid people, a lot of them. And so you do get into a kind of intellectual challenge with these people and my only job really is to try and get to the reality the truth and often you can get there without them admitting anything you can just push them into corners where the viewer at home can see that they're lying through their back teeth and then it's, yeah. is that why the politicians haven't come on breakfast tv <laughs> well they finally come crawling back since um, <laughs> Since Dominic Cummings uh, got the boot from Downing Street, I got a call. I got a call literally ten hours later from Downing Street saying the boycott's over. So it was all driven by him, the guy who broke the lockdown, uh, was the one leading the boycott. I mean, you couldn't make
0: it up. Uh, do you think there is going to be a reset, Piers? Because the, the the mood seems to be of an attempt of change in messaging.
1: Definitely, there's definitely. Um, They've gone from a sort of war footing where they've been at war with everybody because they've been quite rightly held to account for, in, in my view, a very woeful handling of this pandemic. You know, you can't get away from reality. The worst death toll in Europe and the worst economic meltdown in Europe. The facts don't lie. And they've been very defensive about this, understandably, and very aggressive in trying to silence media that want to hold them to account. They've now come out. There's no question they've come on GMB every day now since... The boycott was lifted and we've carried on giving them, uh, you know, I think a proper a ferocious holding to account. But at least they're coming on. Uh, but I think, yeah, look, politics is about momentum. It's a bit like sport in a way. You know, yeah. they've, in a sporting analogy, this government's had an absolutely terrible season. Uh, but vaccines are coming and it may be that we're through this it may be the brexit uh, relentless uh, brexit uh, stuff is over and we could be in a position within say 8 months to a year where both the pandemic and brexit are done and dusted yeah. and the economy surges back which it may well do and if that does happen in the boris johnson Um, you could be in a much better position. He's got four years, remember, before an election. So it's like anything. Everything's retrievable, but you have to understand and accept what you did wrong and own the mistakes you made. And again, I use the sporting analogy, and and Jonathan will know better than anyone. When you get a drubbing, you you can sometimes learn more from that than you ever do from a a relentless winning cycle. And I think that – I would hope that Boris and his cabinet learn the hard mistakes – from these hard mistakes they've made, and emerge a better <laughs> government, because we need him.
2: And also, you know, I was asking you about uh, you know, learning from mistakes and
1: owning up uh, to things. How was your relationship with Trump? <laughs> well, funny <laughs> enough, uh, it was pretty fractious all year. And then, <laughs> out of the blue, about two weeks before the election, he called me. Uh, I got a call from the White House switchboard. And got, we got the President of the United States. And I told you he was saying, no, nah, not now, mate. I'm uh, just watching the telly. Um, <laughs> but on came on came Donald. And I've known him a long time. We, you know, we're pretty good friends. Yeah. And we, had a, we had a half-hour conversation and it ended with the immortal words, Piers, I've got to go. I've got to go and vote. And I turned <laughs> on CNN and... And about 10 minutes later, he was walking out to vote. <laughs> I felt like it was a piece of history. But it's a weird <laughs> thing, you know. It would be like if one of you two became, well, not you so much, right? I don't really know you as well. But Jonathan, if you became Prime Minister or First Minister of Wales, it would just be a weird <laughs> dynamic. If I then have to move from having a laugh with you over a few beers to suddenly having to skewer you on national TV about some dreadful policy. It's a bit like that with Trump. It is a, he, you know, he was very loyal to me for many years. I won his Celebrity Apprentice show, and that's how we got to know each other. And then he gave me lots of interviews at CNN. He gave me – Trump did five t- TV interviews, two as candidate, three as president, to British TV media in the entire time, and they were all to me. And he did that out of loyalty because I won his show and, and stayed loyal to him. So I take people as I find them. In that position,
2: right? If I did – like, for example, if I did become first minister, it would be an ab- absolute miracle. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'd wear a suit that fits, to be honest. But I, I would say that for me, again, going back to the honesty and common sense, I would then hope that, right, you're coming in as a presenter and I'll be a politician, but we'd be have to be honest with, with each other and then our friendship would override that, I feel, because once you start... Yeah. being disloyal to each other your friendship kind of goes doesn't
1: it well that's what i actually like about trump is that despite me kicking him all year about the pandemic and i think his handling of it has been terrible and that's one of the reasons he lost it. if you'd ask me in january i think he was heading for a massive landslide win but the yeah. pandemic found him out you know he just he couldn't handle it and America has a terrible record on it. But the fact that he was able to call me, despite me really burying him all year, I thought said a lot about his character. He's like, you know, Trump is someone who can actually take it. People don't think he can. He's got one of the thinnest skins imaginable and also one of the thickest skins. He reacts to everything, but he can also soak everything up. He's a weird character (laughs) in that regard. But I think after all this... He'll, you know, he'll carry on being a huge character. He's not going to go anywhere, although yeah. he won't be in the White House. And I intend to stay in touch with him, <laughs> and I'll just try and do what I normally do. If I agree with him, I'll say so. If I don't agree yeah. with him, I'll say so.
0: Yeah. what did you want to achieve by writing uh, your book, Wake Up? Really, what you said at the start, Ray, when you read the introduction,
1: which is quite a long introduction and really lays out my argument, which is that you know, it was so polarised now both in the UK, yeah. America, or other countries, driven by social media, we've all now fallen to this lazy thing of feeling like we belong to a tribe, whether it's Brexit or Trump or coronavirus or whatever it is, and you have to stick rigidly to what the tribe says about anything, regardless of new facts that may come out. And we've ended up just becoming a sort of demented, shrieking, Twitter nutcase mob Um, And and the cancel culture that's come with it was inevitable, where people are now so self-righteous about their opinions, they don't want to hear other opinions or even respect them. They want to cancel people's lives and careers, actually finish them for having the audacity to have a different opinion. And when I saw it spreading to university campuses, and they started no-platforming anybody who doesn't fit this kind of narrow, very illiberal, in my view, woke worldview, uh, I thought it's time to write a book. As someone who's... I'm pretty much more liberal than, than not. I'm certainly not a conservative in any, uh, in any normal sense of that word. Uh, and I wanted to write it to my fellow liberals and say, what are you doing? Liberalism, as I explain in the book in detail, is supposed to be about freedom of speech, tolerance, respect for other opinions, it's not about screaming at people or cancelling them because you don't agree with what they're saying, and that's not to defend overt racism or bigotry where it happens. We can all agree that that's wrong. But when I see, you know, the J.K. Rowling debate over uh, transgender rights and women's rights, it's an important debate. You know, in sports, as Jonathan knows, a debate about transgender uh, rugby players is a yes. really important one. And to yeah. me, to me, I support trans rights but I don't want to see women's rights damaged in the, the, the quite correct charge to get fairness and equality for trans athletes. And that's, these debates have to be had without everyone losing their minds. So the book's called Wake Up, and it's really aimed at these woke liberals who think they're so right on and full of freedom and tolerance and kindness, and they're not. They're the most unkind, intolerant people I've ever encountered.
2: And I think you know, like I, I read the, the introduction, and it says the first couple of points you put in, you know, they're they're funny, but they're they're dangerous as well. For example, you know, the going back to the sport, but a transgender playing rugby against my daughters, right? That's that's not safe. That's health and safety going out the window, isn't it? So it's neither it a, fair or equal. No, you know, like the the American athlete is a is a great example. Mm. But the thing for me is, isn't it common sense? balance and perspective has no gone out the window with political
1: yes. And that's the crucial thing. We yeah. ought to be able to have a debate. What do we do about trans athletes? What do we do about trans women born to male biological bodies? In some cases, very tall, powerful, very muscular, against uh, women born to you know, much slighter female biological bodies. <laughs> And yeah. we can see more and more now in cycling, in weightlifting, in sprinting, in others, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So the question is, what do we do about it? I want a bit of to be able to respect trans rights. I want yes. to find a way for trans athletes to compete, of course. But I don't want to see women born to female biological bodies disadvantaged by what's going on. And we ought to be able to have a proper debate about it. But, you know, when Martina Navratilova, who's done more for LGBT rights in the world than any other athlete, when she said all this, she got cancelled. And I couldn't believe what I was watching. They didn't Mm. even want to hear from her. So the message of the book is, can everyone calm down? Let's have what should be, as Jonathan just said, common sense debate. Let's show a bit of common sense. Let's work out a way to agree to disagree about some things, but agree to agree
0: where it makes sense. Is there a danger that people will not engage in issues and won't actually debate key issues because of the reaction they're getting? I think that is equally dangerous. Yes. Well,
1: uh, well, 65%, I think, of Americans in a recent poll said they were too frightened to express any opinions now about anything political or anything remotely sensitive because they worried if they did it on facebook or twitter or whatever it may be that yes. they may get cancelled but what what does it come to when that is the mindset and that is the mentality it's ridiculous so i just say to people look i'm not a, i'm not by the way absolving myself of any responsibility. Sometimes, particularly with sport, I can get completely out of control on Twitter and irrational, <laughs> overly <laughs> passionate. No, can you? Can yeah, you? <laughs> as you well know. Um, and I've had to, when I finished the book, I was like, just, just cool your jets a bit. Let's try and use your platform. Because I used it through the pandemic uh, very effectively to help people like Marcus Rashford and Captain yeah. Tom in particular, where he thinks I helped raise him you know, uh, uh, millions of pounds by constantly supporting him on my Twitter feed to 7.5 million people. So whether that's true or not, I certainly felt good doing it, and I felt good helping Marcus Rashford. And these are forces for good. Whereas constantly screaming at people that are never going to change their mind anyway, uh, trying to persuade them that only your view is the right one, to me actually feels now like a pointless waste of time.
0: Piers, are you saying that writing this book has changed you in some way? Yes. (laughs) I think I may have woken up.
1: (laughs) Now, I'm not going to say I'm not going to lapse, because certainly, if Arsenal keep playing the way they are, there are going to be, there are going to be some explosions on Twitter and some meltdowns. Um, but I do think generally, I'm, a, I'm more aware now, having done the book, of the damage of the mob mentality. And I'm more aware that when you have as many followers as I do, you know, seven and a half million is a lot of people. You know, When I left the Daily Mirror as editor in 2004, we had two and a half million readers. I now have seven and a half million followers. That's three times the readership of The Mirror back in 2004. So that brings with it a responsibility, yeah. to, wield, responsibility. to wield that power and platform in a responsible manner. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be provocative or stir up yeah. debate or any of those things, but it does mean always be cognizant of the potential for a pile on by a mob against people who may not deserve it. Or, you know, you don't ever want to be in a position which I've fallen into a few times, of punching down, not up. You yeah. know, punch up at the politicians making decisions which affect people's lives, but be more wary about when it looks like you may be bullying or punching down. It's never a good look.
2: Do you think, though, on your on your uh, 7.5 million followers, do you know a percentage, roughly, that's ones that kind of support your views or those are totally against your views? Does I, I don't.
1: I think a lot of people follow me to love to hate me, and that's fine. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I actually, I made the point in the book, I don't even necessarily want people to agree with even no. half the book. I want them to be able to read opinions, which I think I've researched pretty thoroughly and presented an argument, and I want people to at least think about it. That's why I really like what Ray said about it made you think. Maybe, yeah. And then come to your own decisions. I said with all my kids, you know, my, my boys are 27, 23, and 19. My little girl's 8. I encourage them all to argue with me all the time. But you better bring, you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You better yeah. be prepared. and You better do your research because that's, that's actually the power of democracy. People who yeah. do their research and then have proper good debate and then reach a better place. That's what we should be doing. Yeah.
2: And that's the right thing. Because I think if I say something, you know, which I think is my, my view on the sport, right? All of a sudden, people write, write uh, tweet in and go, oh, you should be sacked. And yeah. then they, they copy the BBC in. No. I'm thinking, that's new. But then again, if I say, oh, I said something, which I shouldn't have said, right? Back to this female. And then all of a sudden, the whole world went berserk, right? And I was front page of the national newspaper wanting to sack me. Oh, would just went nuts. Well, I thought it. the, I
1: mean, I don't know, if, I don't know what you said about it at the time, but I thought the whole thing with Joe Marler and his tickling scandal yeah, yeah. was just about the end for me. It was like yeah. really, yeah. really, he was being accused of sexual assault I know, against a bloke I know. Who's six foot six and could lay him out with a single yeah. finger. And I'm yeah. like, is this what the world's come to? to uh, a, a ten week ban for what in the old days would have been considered a good old joke by the yeah. rugby boys. And I'm not even sure that any of them really felt offended. They just felt they had to look like they were. Hey, that's what it was, you know, Arlington yeah. Jones would
2: have liked to just gone smack, right? And yeah. then for me, Joe Marlowe would have deserved it, right? Yeah. And the referee should have gone, right, you grabbed him first, you took the you knocked him out, job done, right, let's get on with the game. But no, because of health and safety political correctness, kids are watching. And the thing that gets me is, those people who are voicing their opinions have never actually, have never, ever been in that position. I'm trying to say now, the game is dying, right, rugby like, really, league, a little bit. You're getting bored because defences are so much on top, right? Unless you get quick ball, everyone's complaining about, Oh, mm. why is there so much kicking? Because there's so much kicking, because there's, there's no quick ball being generated. So... You can't run into people like the Vine the all the time right? because you're going to hurt yourself. So what they've got to do is kick. So they, let's, get a, let's, let's get a solution to it. Bring back ruckin Oh, my God, you can't bring back ruckin standing on people. But it's safer than the actual jack when they clean out. So, but it's, it's going back to, to your point, Piers. You can't
0: have um, an issue now without people going absolutely berserk. Huh. Thing right. is, Jiffy, Jiffy, you might be right and you might be wrong about that, but it's right and yeah. proper to have the debate yeah. without everyone going absolutely lunatic. Look, time is just about beaten us. Hang on before yes. we before we ask I want him to ask a question. He always does, he does this, Piers. He, he always okay. does this. <laughs> well you are the broadcaster, you're always chipping in.
2: So I, I've got to, you know, I've got to come in when I see an opportunity. So the Bett Lee bowling incident. Yeah. Right? I, I loved that, right? And I and I kind of applauded you for saying right, I'm gonna do it, right? <laughs> I thought you were fucking mad to be honest. Yeah. Right? That's the first thing. Like, I right? so, yeah, you said, oh he's gonna do it, he's not gonna step down. He's not he's not he's not gonna step down. What was it like just before the first ball, then after the first ball when it was
1: past your head? Well what people didn't see was I thought there'd be like a hundred people watching and then Oh, yeah. They they announced it all on television. So we were at the MCG, and 100,000 people were there that day, or (laughs) 95,000, and 10,000 came out. It was like like being at the Coliseum as a gladiator. And I was practicing in one net, and Brett was bowling in the other. And he was bowling, like, reasonably quick. And I had a guy give me throwdowns who then threw down one that pinged me on the head, and I had, came up like an egg. So I was already incapacitated. Then the Aussie test team came into the nets, Mitchell Johnson in particular, and Brett Lee went over and hugged him. And now the crowd were getting really, chanting, oh, yeah. kill him, binger, kill him, binger. <laughs> Brett's nickname, and then I saw him beginning to get quicker and quicker. So then we start, and I've got bloody padding like the Michelin man. I've got it all worked out. But the fatal error I made was I'd had dinner with Viv Richards the night before, the greatest batsman I ever watched. Yeah. Viv said to me, man, you've got to take it to him, man. Take it <laughs> back to him. Get down the track. First ball, man, get down, get down, get down my track. So if you watch the first ball, you see me advancing at high speed towards Brett Lee, who later described it. He said, ah, oh, sorry, mate. He said, but I saw you moving, and it's like when a shark sees blood moving in the water. I just, you know, I just had to spear you. So um, the first one was was just a ball of lightning. I never saw it. And I played I played reasonably good standard East Sussex League Division I club cricket for 20-odd years. I used to bat... Number three, I faced quick bowling, but nothing like this. Brett Lee's been timed at 100 miles an hour. He's one of the three fastest recorded bowlers in history. And he was still playing in the Big Bash at the time. So he was still bowling unbelievably quick. And the first one smashed me in the back. And he came down and he was just laughing. And I went, I'm with a psychopath. This is the kind of guy I could do one of my crime documentaries. And we had these headsets with the sound on. And then the second one, you see me basically diving for cover. (laughs) <laughs> as towards my head the third one broke my rib clean fracture and the fourth one hit the broken rib and that was the one that really made me wince and brett lee came down and he went oh mate do you hear that one crack <laughs> uh and then i saw shane Warren have a word with him as if to say mate give him for god's sake give him something to hit." so he then yorked me <laughs> smashed my stumps out of the ground and then the sixth one he hit me one more time just for good measure and a friend of mine kevin peterson was uh in the England dressing room, we said they were all, apart from him, well, I don't even believe he was, and they were all cheering on Brett Lee. Because, of course, I'd been calling out the England batsmen for yeah. being chicken. And the one thing I would say, I never saw any of them. It was unbelievably painful. I had four injuries at the end of it and I had to get my, my rib thing. But when I went back in the MCG, the Brits were all like, what a wanker, you've embarrassed us, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> all the Aussies stood up and went, alas, a pond with some bloody guts around here. <laughs> and I didn't have to buy a beer in Melbourne or Sydney for the next two weeks. It was one of the great trips in my life, even if I could barely sleep from the pain. <laughs> so I, I don't think anyone will do it again because within a year, yeah. there was the tragedy of Philip Hughes, the Australian yeah, got yeah. killed, And so I don't think they'll ever again allow a, a professional fast bowler to do it. I've had plenty of them offering. Um, so as an experience, once I knew I was actually still alive, yeah. as an experience... It was unbelievably thrilling. Mm-hmm. I mean how many am having trouble how many cl- hearing you. Sorry. How many club cricketers get the chance to face yeah. someone like Brett Lee trying to knock them out? And it was uh, it was incredibly. And it, didn't te- and it didn't teach you to keep your mouth shut then, did it? No. In fact all it did was it doubled me down. <laughs> I thought, if I can stand that, I can stand anything. And actually, I have to say, he's a fantastically good bloke, Brett We've yeah, become exactly. really good mates. He took me out for a brilliant dinner with his brother. Um, we went and had uh, massive steaks, <laughs> and he brought me some magnums of Penfolds, one of the best years. And we had a great laugh. So uh, there's no hard feeling there. But well, you'll, was, have,
2: to ta- you'll have to take me out for a drink in London when this is all over.
1: I will, mate. I'll get my little brother out, because I know get you and he out. are dangerous drinking partners.
0: We are. We are. <laughs> Here's... Is- Piers, thank you very much for spending time with us today. By the way, Britain's got talent, America's got talent. How about a little competition to find a new football commentator? That'd be, <laughs> uh, that would be decent, wouldn't it? You were always one of my favourites. Oh, I, I, I can't do it for love and the money. But the, no, the no, no, intro, no, no, no. You see, you, that's where you're
1: being too modest. You are always one of my favourite pundits of them all. And that's why I wanted to do this. Other than the yeah. fact I love Jonathan oddly, but uh, <laughs> no, seriously, no, no full smoke. And I, I, I'll see you. One of the best.
0: Yeah, Very one. kind of you. Piers, thank you for joining us. Um, um, I'm looking forward to going through the rest of uh, Wake And uh, I'm looking forward to going through it. Grateful thanks to Kerry London for sponsoring uh, Jiffy and Stubbsy. Piers Morgan, good to spend time with you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Piers. All stay safe. Stay safe, go, stay safe, mate. All the best. ta da. And thanks for listening to Jiffy and Stubbsy. Hope you'll join us again. Please hit the subscribe button.